Welcome to Star Wars Comics and Canon. The Force is strong with this one. Hello there and welcome to Star Wars Comics in Canon, your guide to the wider Star Wars canon through the comic book lens. And to take you on this journey, I'm your host, Mike Burton. And so brings episode 73. So then guys, this week I am tackling the first volume of the 2020 run of the main Star Wars comics written by Charles Saul. And to clarify, this is the second run of the main run of Star Wars comics in the new canon. The first run started in 2015 and ended at the end of 2019. And I actually tackled the first volume of the first run all the way back in episode 9 of Star Wars Comics and Canon. And then I tackled the final volume of the main run of Star Wars first run on episode 69. So it's nice, easy to remember. And so if you haven't checked that out, you know, I recommend go checking that out because they basically just cover the three years between A New Hope and Empire Strikes back and now this run the 2020 run is going to cover the time between empire strikes back and return of the jedi which is about a year now empire strikes back was at three aby so three years after the battle of yavin obviously three years after new hope that's a good way to figure out and then return of the jedi was four aby And you guys are probably already aware that I've been tackling the War of the Bounty Hunters crossover event, which includes this comic run, Bounty Hunters, Darth Vader, Dr. Aphra, and then the War of the Bounty Hunters companion comics, as well as the miniseries itself. Now, this volume and the next volume of the 2020 Star Wars run take place before the War of the Bounty Hunters. So for clarity, in, you know, four or five weeks time when I release the second volume of this run, it will mean that this episode and that episode will come before episodes 60, 64, 68, and 70 which are the ones I've done of War of the Bounty Hunters. So I want to clarify that in case anyone gets a little bit confused. Obviously, I tackled War of the Bounty Hunters before getting onto this stuff uh, because War of the Bounty Hunters was very exciting at the time and I just wanted to talk about it. (laughs) And I hadn't quite caught up with everything. Obviously, I'm still going on with Darth Vader 2017 run uh, before I tackled the 2020 run of Darth Vader. I'm all caught up with Dr. Aphra and I'm going to be tackling the Bounty Hunters comics as well. So still behind on certain things in some respects, but they should all kind of marry up towards the end of the year. And to clarify, if this is anyone's first time, hello there, thank you very much for tuning in to the show. I go through each of these comics, I basically go through the plot, I give bullet point information of the plot itself, so if you read the comics you'll still get a lot out of reading them, but I kind of focus on the connections made to other Star Wars content, be it characters or species or planets or just random little fun bits of trivia. Obviously I can't tackle literally every single connection to everything in every comic because if I did that I probably would have to spend about 60 episodes per comic just because everything's got so much interconnectivity. But generally speaking what happens is that if I've tackled a connection in a previous episode if it's in the same series i generally won't repeat it because generally speaking you guys if you're listening to like volume four of like darth vader or something you've probably listened to volumes one to three so i try not to repeat myself too much but it depends on how long it's been as well so you know if in episode say 20 i gave information on a certain species and then the species come up in this episode then i will probably give a bit more information on them again because it's been such a long period of time so that's the general premise and just idea of how the show kind of runs Uh, So with that in mind, let's get into the information on Volume 1. 
So as I said at the start, the writer for this is Charles Saul, and in addition, the artist, so pencil and inker, is Jesus Says. The colour artist is Arif Prianto, but on certain issues, Arif Prianto had help from another person. So on issues one and six, Jesus Says was also a colour artist. On issue four, Rachel Rosenberg was also a colour artist, and then on issue five, Dan Brown was also colour artist. There are six issues in this first volume. Issue number one came out in January 2020. Issue number six came out September 2020. And then the trade paperback collection came out in November 2020. So the trade paperback collection is called The Destiny Path, which is also the name of this very story arc. So with that all in mind, let's read out the crawl from issue one. The Rebel Alliance has been scattered following their defeat at Hoth. To evade the Empire, Han Solo, Princess Leia Organa, Chewbacca, and C-3PO fled in the Millennium Falcon in hope of finding refuge with Han's old friend, Lando Calrissian. But Darth Vader arrived at Cloud City first and forced Lando to take them prisoner as bait to lure Luke Skywalker into a trap. Leia managed to lead the others in a daring escape, though Han Solo was lost to Vader's bounty hunter. And Luke now reels from his defeat at the hands of Darth Vader. So what they've done here is actually something quite interesting. So the first issue, which I'm tackling right now, and then a few pages of the second issue, actually takes place within Empire Strikes Back. It's only partway through the second issue that actually takes place after Empire Strikes Back. And the reason for this, just to clarify, because people are going to get a little bit confused if I don't elaborate on this, is that obviously Luke's hand was cut off in Empire Strikes Back, but then at the end you see him get a new hand that works, and then the final shot is him and Leia kind of standing, and they watch the Falcon fly away, and Luke mentions something to Lando and Chewie about rendezvousing on Tatooine. Now, without these comics involved, obviously that rendezvous is referencing the start of Return of the Jedi. However, it's actually different because of obviously all the things they've managed to put in between these two movies, and some quite clever, I wouldn't call it retconning, because they do actually go to Tatooine in issue two. So it is quite an interesting thing what they've done here. So this comic works without contradicting your own thoughts of the ending of Empire Strikes Back, if that makes sense. So for this whole issue, number one, Luke doesn't have another hand. He's just had the one hand cut off. And he's got this sort of device thing over it to prevent us probably having to look at the stump. And I presume it's going to help heal it or something along those lines, you know, getting ready for when he eventually puts um, the robotic hand on the stump. So in summary, this comic takes place just after Leia, Lando and Chewie in the Falcon go and pick up Luke from, you know, and he's hanging on that antenna thing at the bottom of Cloud City and Bespin. You know, they pick him up uh, and then he's in the ship and then like a time goes by a little bit and then there's that part where that, you know, they wave goodbye to the Falcon as it flies off to Tatooine and stuff. So this takes place in between those two moments in time. And then when we get there, I will confirm when we're then past that point. But as I said, that won't be till issue number two. So with that one in mind, let's get into the story. So... Issue 1 starts with Luke having flashes of his fight with Vader at the end of Empire Strikes Back, you know, no, I am your father, cuts the hand off, etc, etc. And Luke's just kind of sat there thinking about that. Then Leia and Lando are having an argument about something, but then Leia kind of introduces Lando to Luke as, you know, the guy who destroyed the Death Star. They both tell Luke that Han is frozen in carbonite because obviously he wasn't there when it happened. And it is also showing that Luke is really struggling with the loss of his hand. He's feeling like his connection to the Force is a little bit off. He doesn't really feel himself and he's kind of, yeah, a bit lost. But the gang decide they're going to go meet up with the Rebel fleet, which obviously after the Battle of Hoth, where they technically lost, they then had to scatter the fleet into loads of different places and then they would organise like a rendezvous for the fleet to kind of get back together and figure out what they're doing next. So all of the fleet has kind of separated into separate divisions or cells. So they say they're going to go meet the Rebel fleet at this location, and then it shows the location before the Falcon gets there. 
You've got several rebel capital ships as well as loads of fighters all being blocked by four star destroyers that are blockading them against a star slash a sun. So they're basically stuck. If they try and go in one direction, they'll go into the star and die. And if they go in the other direction, they're just getting shredded by the cannons on the four star destroyers that are surrounding them. And the character that is leading this blockade is someone called Commander Zara. And this is all her tactics and things. And she's on a ship called Tarkin's Will, which I'll give a bit more information on in a little bit. It shows some of the rebels that are kind of stuck in this blockaded area, and a group of them are called the Pathfinders, and included in the Pathfinders is someone called Kez Dameron, which is Poe Dameron's dad. So a bit of information here about the Pathfinders. So the Pathfinders were first in canon as of recording this, a thing in Rogue One. They were under the guy Melshi, and they're essentially the Special Forces Trackers Unit. They're at the Battle of Endor, they actually go with Han when he gets his special forces unit to, you know, try and blow up the bunker that is projecting the shield onto the second Death Star. When Han goes there, he takes the Pathfinders with them. And as I said, they were created in Rogue One under Melshi, and I believe parts of the Pathfinders went and fought in the Battle of Scarif, but obviously few rebels who were at the Battle of Scarif actually managed to survive. There were a couple of ships that managed to escape, but there weren't a lot. In addition to Kez Dameron being part of the Pathfinders, there is also a guy called Needle. Needle is a Quermian, which are similar to Zextos. They can live over 200 years, they have two brains, and they also have four arms. A notable one is a Jedi Master called Yariel Poof. He is in the High Republic content, but he dies before the events of the Clone Wars. You can see him in The Phantom Menace sat on one of the Council's chairs in the Jedi Order. I just want to clarify that Quirmians have very long necks, they are also humanoid, they have very pale skin, they don't seem to have noses, and they look fairly similar to Kaminoans in some ways, uh, which is part of the reason they don't really show up in the rest of the prequels, because they're created for the Phantom Menace, and then when the Kaminoans were needed, George Lucas didn't want to have people confuse the Kaminoans with the Quimians, so Quimians aren't really in the prequel trilogy that much aside from Phantom Menace, but they are separate species. There is also a character called Frell, and she is a Tholothian. Tholothians are humanoid-type beings. They have tendrils coming out of their heads, and a couple of notable ones is Ty Yorick from The High Republic, who's currently got her own comic miniseries, and also she is on the cover of Kevin Scott's The Rising Storm. In addition, there's also a couple of Jedi from The Clone Wars, which is Adi Gallia, who gets killed by Maul in The Clone Wars, and then there's also Stas Ali, who you see on a speeder bike during the Order 66 montage, and she gets killed by clones as well. So you have seen Tholothians. You may not even realise that you have, but two of the three that are most notable were killed in fairly unpleasant ways. Another member of the Pathfinders is Shara Bay. She is Poe Dameron's mum, and both Kez Dameron and Shara Bay are actually in the Shattered Empire comic, which is set just after the end of Return of the Jedi. It's a four-part miniseries, and I tackled it really early on in Star Wars Comics and Canon, all the way back on episode four. So if you want to find out more information on Shattered Empire, it's an alright comic. It's not like the best thing in the world, but it's, it's a bit of fun. If you want that, go check out episode four. So back to the story, you've got Kez, Needle and Frell all on the ship just looking out watching the space battle go on, while Shara Bay is flying an A-Wing. They're worried about their odds of survival because they can't seem to break through the blockade, and then the Millennium Falcon appears. Commander Zara notes the Falcon appears and then orders that the rest of the Empire destroys it. So you've got Lando and Chewie flying the Millennium Falcon, and you've got Leia and Luke on the guns. Leia and Luke are both shooting, but Luke isn't doing very well. He can't seem to focus very well. He is also obviously missing a hand, which makes it even more difficult to try and use a two-handed gun to try and fight things. But yeah, he can't really focus, and he's thinking about Ben, and then Vader, and then some TIE fighters start shooting at the Falcon and do a bit of damage. 
One more hit to the Falcon in quick succession could mean the Falcon gets destroyed, but surprise, surprise, it doesn't, because obviously it appears elsewhere in for decades to come. And the way they get around this is because Luke uses the Force and he moves all of the TIE Fighters that are trying to attack the Falcon, and there's like 10 of them thereabouts, and he moves the TIE Fighters' control sticks, so the pilots are trying to steer, but they can't because he's using the Force to, to move the control sticks, and crashes the TIE Fighters into each other which I just think is a really, really cool thing in Star Wars. I think I've seen it once or twice before. I have a feeling that Vader does it in one of his comics, but I just think why Jedi or Force users don't use that more frequently, or at least don't use it more frequently in the movies and things, I don't know, but there, it's still a really cool thing to watch. So the Millennium Falcon then flies towards one of the Star Destroyers, manages to destroy the turret guns on there to kind of release a bit of the blockade, and then the Rebels manage to find a hole in that blockade and immediately use hyperspace to travel at light speed through this air quotes hole in the blockade. Zara then communicates with Darth Vader. He tells her that the Millennium Falcon is off limits because if Luke was on board and the Falcon got destroyed, then the consequences would be severe. He then tells Zara to locate and destroy the rest of the rebels, but to leave the Falcon somewhat alone if Luke is on it. And he also mentions Zara's past failures. Back to the rebels, you've got Leia who doesn't trust Lando. She's voicing her concerns about obviously his betrayal at Cloud City and you know she doesn't really know him it was only han and chewie who really knew lando very well and obviously chewie isn't too fond of lando either leia is then talking with the rest of the rebel leaders who are among that division that they kind of connected with and then they realize that the empire can seemingly crack their codes because obviously when the rebels communicate with each other when they send transmissions and whatnot they are encrypted or there's codes to them so that if you got them you wouldn't know what they're talking about and it shows that whenever one rebel cell tries to communicate with another rebel cell, or I keep interchanging between cell and division because in Star Wars Rebels they call it a cell and then several cells get together and I think it makes a division. So apologies for any confusion there, but cell and division, very similar things. It's just a group of rebels. When the divisions, you know, contact each other and the Empire manages to crack the codes, the Empire then has the location of the two rebels, the one that is communicating to try and find the other one and the one that is receiving it. So knowing that the Rebellion can't actually contact any of the rest of the divisions because then it would give away the position of each other to the Empire. There's then a comment about one of the cells being near Malastare and just want to clarify that Malastare is a name that you should remember because in the Clone Wars series, that is the homeworld of the Zillow Beast, which is a giant thing. The, the storyline was kind of like a King Kong sort of thing. Um, but it's also the homeworld of the Doug. Uh, Doug species in Phantom Menace, Sebulba, the horrible pod racer that you know is pretty unpleasant to Anakin and stuff. He's a Doug. And also the planet of Malastare has been colonized by the species Gran. Gran, they basically look like three-eyed goat people. Uh, there's loads of them in Star Wars. I think it's across all of the trilogies and things. Um, so yeah, look for a three-eyed goat person and the species is called Gran. While the Rebellion are trying to figure out options, Luke is by himself with R2 and he just feels really lost. He tries to call out to Yoda with the Force, but there was no answer. He tries to speak to Ben, but can't really feel him. And then he gets angry and he kind of yells and then like this wave of energy kind of comes off him and starts to crack the window behind him. He comes himself down and apologizes to R2, says that he's angry and that he's afraid. And then he's questioning that Yoda lied to him and Ben lied to him and he doesn't really know how to feel about things, like where does he go from here? Does he even want to be a Jedi anymore? Should he be a Jedi anymore? And he just feels lost and he doesn't know where he's supposed to be. And that bit of a downer is where issue number one ends. So issue number two starts up with Leia still confirming she's unsure if she can trust Lando. So she gets Chewie to go along with Lando if Lando takes the Millennium Falcon and they go to Tatooine to find information out on Han because Lando's got some contacts there. 
He shows that Luke is still struggling, and then Leia says to him to get a new hand, which obviously he does, and then it shows the Millennium Falcon flying towards Tatooine. So now is the point where Empire Strikes Back, the film has officially ended, and now we're after that element. So the Falcon flies towards Tatooine, before it manages to get planet side, some TIE fighters appear. Lando makes a comment saying that the ship is too famous, for things like smuggling or trying to be inconspicuous, and then before the Falcon can really do much to react, some other ships appear, and then immediately shoot out the TIE fighters. It's confirmed that these other ships that shot the TIE fighters were pirates, and the species of these pirates are primarily Weequay. Now Weequay in Star Wars are very commonly associated with pirates, as in most of the Weequay we actually see are normally pirates or similar sort of thug-like individuals. The most famous Weequay, and also one of the best characters in the entirety of Star Wars, including films, series, and anything, is Hondo Onaka. If you don't know who that is, shame on you. He appears in the Clone Wars series, he also pops up in Rebels, and he's even, if you go to Galaxy's Edge in the Disneyland World theme park place, Hondo is actually there as well. I know his name sounds similar to Holdo, but that's Laura Dern's character from The Last Jedi with the purple hair from Galentia, I think it is. There is also a Clone Wars era Jedi called Sora Bulk, and some information about the Weequay. They have leather skin that's generally grey in colour. They have some resistance to blaster fire because of the thickness of their skin. They're from the desert world of Spieler, and that obviously explains why their skin is the way it is, although they are very common across the galaxy. So although that is their home world, they still spread out quite a lot. And also in the Light of the Jedi, there is a Nile character, one of the Tempest Runner leaders, called Kasav. He is also a Weequay. And you first saw Weequays in Return of the Jedi, I believe on Jabba's Sail Barge, um, or in Jabba's Palace, and then later on on the Sail Barge. So they're in live action and in animated. So the, anyway, these pirates come to Lando and Chewie on the Falcon saying, you know, give yourself up Han Solo, there's a bounty on you, that sort of thing. Lando responds saying, this isn't Han's ship, this is my ship, you know, he was just borrowing it for a while, and says to the pirates that if they escort him down to where Jabba is, he'll give them a hefty payout because he is organising a deal with Jabba to supply him with some Tabana gas. So the pirates agree and then escort them down. Meanwhile, Leia is in the control room with the rest of the rebel leaders and things, and now there's a bigger group of them, and she explains the situation, saying that they can either just wait and hope that other rebels kind of figure out what's going on, or they can act, which obviously is a lot more dangerous. And obviously, the rebels want to act, because that's kind of their thing. Back on Tatooine, Lando is at Jabba's palace, and he's speaking with a contact of his about Boba Fett, and they all confirm they haven't actually seen Boba Fett as of yet. Lando then says, if you do see Boba Fett, please let us know, and then Lando is summoned to Jabba. Jabba questions to Lando why he lied to some of Jabba's thugs, pirates, whatever you want to call them, because he knows that Lando lost Cloud City to the Empire, Jabba has got a deal with the Empire about Tabana gas, and therefore not only did Lando not have any bargaining chips, but he also lied, so they're going to feed him to the Rancor. Lando says that he can provide some rebel intel to Jabba in exchange for his life, but he said that he would need to have some time to actually be able to gather that and send it across to them. Jabba ponders and then agrees with it and then lets Lando go, and Lando rendezvous with Chewie. Lando says to Chewie, look, can you just leave me somewhere around here or anywhere? Just drop me off, go back to your rebellion, and you can do whatever you want with it, and I'll just make my own way. Chewie declines, and so they continue on their way back to the rebellion. Back with the Rebels, they decide on the operation they're going to do and how they're going to try and solve this problem of theirs regarding the communications and things, and they call it Operation Starlight, and they specifically say it was named after an old beacon out in space that helped travellers, and that beacon is 
from the High Republic. It's called Starlight Beacon, and it is the central part of, as much as I've read, of Phase 1 of the High Republic. So when in the Light of the Jedi, they're talking about Starlight Beacon, and they're trying to unveil it. That's kind of the premise of the first one. And then from there, Starlight Beacon is like a central hub. There's a lot of Jedi that are on there, a lot of travelers, it's like medical bays, all kinds of things. And it is used to help people when they're trying to fly through hyperspace. Um, obviously, this was 235 odd years before the events of this comic. So obviously, hyperspace was more difficult and complicated, etc, etc. Um, but I'll get into all that sort of stuff when I've got a book review that I'm going to be doing, another one. Um, I've got the Rising Storm book review that I'm going to be doing next. And then after that, I'm going to be doing Out of the Shadows, as well as Race to Crash Point Tower. So I've got three more book reviews to do, uh, aiming before January, but we'll see how that goes. And in one of those, there's like a bit of information at the start specifically about what the beacons do and that sort of thing so on one of those book reviews i'll get into a bit more detail on that because it's not specifically relevant i just thought it was a nice connection anyway it shows that luke is now practicing with that training droid you know the orb thing that kind of shoots out little stun things you saw it in a new hope when obi-wan is first teaching luke about the force and he puts the visor down on the helmet and is using the lightsaber to try and defend against the bolts that are being shot at him and luke's practicing obviously he doesn't have his lightsaber anymore because it got lost when he fought against vader so he is now using a blaster to try and shoot the training droid and evade it and things, but isn't doing amazing. Lando enters the room and notes that Luke is clearly having problems with the Force. So Lando says to him that he wants to go back to Bespin, he's got some business there, and he says, well, Luke, if you tell the Rebellion that you want to go to Cloud City to maybe try and find your lightsaber that you lost, obviously that'll help you, you'll become a Jedi, all that sort of stuff, and it'll help me because if I try and go to Cloud City by myself, they won't let me. Luke ponders for a moment and then has a quick force vision and it shows a robed figure holding the lightsaber saying, follow your destiny. And that's where issue number two ends. So on to issue number three. It starts on the Star Destroyer, Tarkin's Will, after it destroys another rebel cell. And then Zara goes through the backstory of the Tarkin's Will. So it was previously called Fortitude and then it was hit by some debris after the Death Star blew up, obviously from A New Hope. And then when she was told by the Empire in general that she could have any ship she wanted to command, she chose this one because it's a reminder of all the people that they lost in the Rebellion's terrorist attack against the Death Star, as they kind of put it. And all of the crew members upon the ship, now Tarkin's will, all lost someone from the Death Star. So they're all kind of feeling the same way against the Rebellion and the Star Destroyer that is damaged because of this, although it's been, you know, repaired so it's functioning, the scars and the searing and the more aesthetic damage, they are left there specifically as a reminder. Meanwhile, Luke, Lando and R2-D2 are flying in a ship on Bespin. So they're going towards Cloud City, Bespin is the system, and they're not in the Millennium Falcon because I think Chewie is flying that somewhere else. And as they're flying in, in this other ship, a couple of patrol ships come by and communicate with this ship saying, you know, watch your business on Cloud City, you know, we'll shoot you if you don't answer and, you know, if you try and fly away, etc. So Lando comes them and talks to the pilot that he actually knows the pilot themselves. And he asks about, you know, oh, how's your son doing and names the son? Or how's this going? How's that doing? And he says, look, I know you've got a job to do. I'm here to try and help everyone because I know what the Empire is doing to the place. So if you could just make it look good, so if you can like shoot at us, but maybe just don't hit us and kind of let us guide to where we need to go, then, you know, you scratch our back, we scratch yours, everyone's happy. The pilot agrees to that, but then warns that obviously there is a set of anti-air guns and turrets and things on Cloud City, so they won't be able to fly close anyway. Lando says, don't worry, we'll be able to sort that, and they fly closer and closer. They manage to evade some of the turret fire, but it looks like they're not going to make it, and then when they get just close enough, Lando presses a little button on his wrist, and he turns off the anti-air guns with a deactivation code. 
Now, for clarity, Lando's full name is Landonis Balthazar Carizian, and he is the Baron Administrator of Cloud City, which it seems to be like the, arguably the highest rank in Cloud City. It's, you know, being a Baron Administrator, basically controlling the money and what's going in and out and exporting and the Tabana gas, etc., etc. But if you want to know more information about that sort of stuff, then I'd recommend reading the Lando miniseries. It's also written by Charles Saul. And I actually tackled that on episode 18 of Star Wars Comics and Canon. Uh, so if you want some more Lando backstory, go check that out. Anyway, after deactivating those turrets, they managed to land. And then as soon as they exit the ship, the ship then blows up because stormtroopers have shot it with a rocket launcher. Fortunately, the gang are all okay. They start to kind of try and fight back in some ways, you know, shooting at them and things. But Lando manages to close the door that is between the stormtroopers and the gang using his little wrist thing. They then all split up because Luke is going to go find his lightsaber. Lando's doing something else. And then Leia is also there doing something else. And Lando tells Luke where he could find his lightsaber and then also says that, you know, R2-D2 still got the map from when he downloaded a lot of the information of Cloud City back in Empire Strikes Back. So, you know, he says, use R2's map and you'll find your way. So after a couple of panels of them all like walking around Cloud City, it then shows that Lando finds exactly what he was looking for and that what is a who, and that is Lobot, who is plugged into the central processing core. So he's basically plugged into the mainframe. It's quite a messed up panel to look at because I just find humans being plugged into things is always kind of uncomfortable and a bit unnerving. If anyone has seen Series 7 of Clone Wars, uh, there's an episode where the clone trooper Echo, he's like plugged into lots of machinery by the separatists and it's quite a lot to deal with for a kid's show in essence. Um, but with Lobot, his head, he's got a cybernetic implant in it called the AJ6 Cyborg Construct and that is plugged into like 40 odd cables all plugging into the core and he's just standing in this room with his eyes closed with all these cables connected to him it's yeah, it's quite intense now lobot was the man you'd have seen in empire strikes back he is bold and as i said he's got a cyborg construct so it's just something that is like a gray device that is on someone's head it goes over their ears and around the back of their head it's basically meant to sort of increase the user productivity they can interact with like machines and things a bit more and it's meant to make the person like a lot more smart a lot more analytical being able to deal with all these crazy calculations and all these sorts of other things however normally when someone gets something like that it removes their emotions somewhat now, you do see other characters in Star Wars that have got this. There's a Rodian in it in Star Wars Rebels. He's got one. Uh, there's also a guy who, I can't remember if he's in Clone Wars or Rebels. He's got glasses. I think it's in Rebels. He's also got one as well. And so the Empire often give it to people and then kind of force them to work and, you know, do really, really hard work in essence. Uh, once again, if you want more information on that, check out that Lando miniseries I mentioned because it goes into a lot more detail there. So when Lando's looking at Lobot, he decides to play around with the system and things and he makes the gas expel out of cloud city it shows an imperial officer at this control room noticing that the tabana gas is causing a huge amount of problems because the whole process for making tabana gas or getting it together in essence it has to be pure it's a very specific process cloud city is there it's got like vents all over the sort of underside it sucks in like all of the toxins from the atmosphere and everything there and then it creates the tabana which is what everyone needs and then it just expels all the rest of the badness in other ways but what Lando is doing is he's just letting it all the fumes come out everywhere which means that all of the gas they've already processed and things that's becoming contaminated and then it's also making the air harder to breathe because all these toxins and stuff are going out in it and it's causing a lot of problems so the imperial officer is telling one of the technicians to you know sort this out stop this happening and the technician says he can't he's locked out of the system no one seems to be able to do anything about it so this officer sends down a group of stormtroopers to find what's happening because they can see where 
the signal that has activated this is coming from, which is obviously where Lando and Lobot are. So a squad of stormtroopers goes down there. Meanwhile, Leia is checking Carbonite. She's found some things and she's trying to work out how to unfreeze things, so to start the unfreezing sequence. So Carbonite is used for transporting all kinds of different things. It's not specifically meant to transport people. I think that although you see it a lot in The Mandalorian, when you saw it in Empire Strikes Back, from what I can tell from a little bit of dialogue in these comics, it seems to be one of the few times they have actually frozen a person to transport them via carbonite so it's not a common practice as far as i can tell across the star wars universe but i presume after everyone kind of found out what happened to han solo and obviously in the war of the bounty hunters it shows the whole galaxy was aware of someone being frozen in carbonite and things that i think it became a potentially a more common thing to freeze people in carbonite and so that's when you see it in the Mandalorian and stuff. But obviously Leia doesn't know how to unfreeze someone or anything like that. So the reason obviously she's gone to Cloud City is A, to keep an eye on Lando. But obviously they've just split up. So she's now just trying to find a way to unfreeze people if they are stuck in carbonite. She seemingly manages it and then a couple of stormtroopers see her and then stun her. Not knowing that she's Princess Leia, just finding this person kind of sneaking around looking suspicious. Meanwhile, Lando is getting pursued by those stormtroopers. He can see through like a tinted window or something. They're trying to blow through the door that's going to enter into the room that he's in with Lobot. And so he communicates with Luke for help. Shows that Luke is at this absolutely colossal junkyard, which is where basically all the rubbish gets thrown, which is where his lightsaber would have fallen. He says he's a little bit busy at the moment. He can't help Lando at the moment. But once he finds a saber, he'll be up to assist. And then this comic ends with those stormtroopers who stunned Leia were told to use the new method of transporting prisoners, so they freeze her in carbonite, but as confirmed, they don't know it's Princess Leia, they just think it's just someone. And that's where that comic ends, with a panel of Leia being frozen carbonite. So issue number four starts off with an exchange between two individuals, and I really like it, I thought it was a lot of fun, and I'm just going to read it to you guys just because it is fun. Obviously, as I always stipulate with these things, please go out and read these comics, you know, on Marvel Unlimited, or if they're on Hoopla, or buy a copy, Comixology, wherever you find comics and things, you know, please buy them or read them in a legitimate way, so that not only do you get more things out of it, but also the creators and stuff do, and funds the industry, etc, etc, but that's the reason why I don't read out every single thing here, because obviously that wouldn't be very exciting and also I want you guys to be able to experience these comics if you desire after listening to this episode as well but there's the old time I like to find something to read out haven't done anything on this one so let's read this out now this is between an imperial officer and a technician it was the ones from the previous comic when the technician said that he's locked out he can't stop this tabana gas or whatever like flooding out of the system and the imperial officer sends a group of stormtroopers down to try and solve the problem so that's who's communicating now so it starts with the imperial officer if this blasted venting doesn't stop, the whole blasted place will be unusable. Shut it off. I already told you, I'm locked out of the system. Can't do anything from up here. I am an Imperial Naval Officer. You are a low-level tech for a quasi-legal Tabana gas mining operation. You will address me as Sir. Mid-level. Mid-what? I've got 10 years working on Bespin. That makes me mid-level. Sir. Anyway, Sir. Only way to turn off the contaminant venting is from the central processing, down on level 109, which is why you already sent a bunch of soldiers down there. Maybe you ought to check in with them rather than yelling at me, huh? Maybe I ought to have you shot, you impertinent little... Captain Tanch, I have an update. Yes, about time. What's happening down there, trooper? Don't worry, sir. This won't take long. So yeah, I just want to share that because I want to show that not anyone who is being told what to do by the Empire is quite as easy to boss around. There is a little bit of resistance there. Obviously, a little bit of cheekiness, which I quite enjoy, but still kind of vaguely doing what he's told. Uh, and obviously, the last kind of vague voice I was doing there was a stormtrooper communicating with the Imperial officer saying, you know, we seem to have found the cause of this. We're going to try and solve it. And so with that, it shows that the stormtroopers are trying to breach the door that Lando and 
Lobot are in. So Lando communicates to Luke, Luke's still looking for his lightsaber, and then Lobot's eyes open. You then see a batch of mouse droids zoom out of this room that they're in, and then fly into these stormtroopers that are trying to breach the door, and seemingly incapacitates all of them. I mean, there are a lot of mouse droids there, and only like a handful of troopers, but it's quite a humorous thing to watch. Now, mouse droids you guys would recognise, they're actually called MSE series maintenance droids. They're used a lot across the galaxy, I think they're in most Star Wars content, mainly not the background doing little bits and pieces, and they're in A New Hope, I think where Chewie's walking down like a hallway and things, and then one kind of scuttles up to him and he roars at it and it like skeets off, that's a mouse droid. You know what they look like, they're little boxes basically on the floor, they're very, very, very small. So when the troopers are taken care of, Lando then cuts Lobot free from all these cables that he's connected to, and it shows that the troopers that froze Leia and Carbonite are now taking her to a shipyard. Luke is still trying to find his saber in this giant junkyard, and he decides to open himself up to the Force and try something. And he then has this vision, which is a really, really cool artwork in this vision. It's like a double-page spread. I really enjoy it. He sees Ben and Vader and Yoda. Obviously, I want to clarify Ben being Obi-Wan. It's just because Luke refers to him as Ben, so it's like old man Kenobi. But he sees all of them, and he also sees like an image of Palpatine. And then he sees this robed person who's on this strange-coloured beach, kind of calling out to him. And then he sees Leia frozen in carbonite, and he kind of snaps out the vision. Lando and Lobot are trying to make their escape, and they are stopped by a couple of stormtroopers. Then suddenly the stormtroopers are flung out of a window behind them. Lando turns to Lobot and says, did you do that? And then Luke pipes up and says, no, that was me. And Lando's like, oh, so you seemingly repaired your connection with the Force somewhat. And he was like, yeah, basically. And then Lando tells Luke where the ships are so they can go find Leia. And Lando doesn't know that Leia's been frozen in carbonite. On the way there, they like talk a little bit. And then Luke mentions that he doesn't need a lightsaber to become a Jedi. It's a tool. And also... He's unsure how he kind of feels about it because obviously it belongs to Darth Vader uh, before him. So he's just kind of left it there. And while he's kind of having this little monologue, it shows that an Ugnor actually finds it in the junkyard, you know, moments after Luke left. So Ugnaughts are quite interesting little creatures. They are porcine humanoids. So porcine, I think, is basically relating to pigs because they've got little pig noses and things. They're from a planet called Gentes, but many of them actually live on Cloud City because when Cloud City was built, the person who organised that asked the Ugnaughts to help. And in exchange, they actually got access to loads of the lower levels of Cloud City just to have as their own homes and things. And many of the Ugnaughts live on Cloud City and view Cloud City as their home, which is nice because Ugnaughts are really, really hard workers. They're generally like a metre tall, if that. Uh, they are in the original trilogy a fair amount there's some in the clone wars there's some in rebels they're like generally around the galaxy here there and everywhere a little bit but they're essentially just little pig people kind of uh, the most famous one you guys would know would probably be Kuil, um, who is the guy who says i have spoken in the mandalorian he's an ugnaught and also as i mentioned before hondo onaka who's a weak way space pirate he actually has a friend who is an ugnaught i can't remember the friend's name at the moment but i think in star wars rebels the ugnaught is with him quite a lot Anyway, back to the story. Luke confirms to Lando that he wants to get his X-Wing back, and he needs a diversion. Lando realises that Leia is frozen carbonite and then moans at Luke, and Luke says, well, I didn't tell you because I knew you wouldn't come and help if I told you. So now you're here. Come on. You must have some sort of trick up your sleeve. You've got that weird gadget thing. Lando says, look, I don't have any more tricks up my sleeve or gadgets. I've basically used them all up. Why don't you do something? And Luke says, well, we need to free all these. How are we going to free all these people from being frozen in carbonite? So you've got, you know, layer somewhere. And then there's loads, I think it's like 10 or so other like blocks of carbonite that have got people in them. And stormtroopers are slowly loading them into shuttles. And Lando says, well, it's really easy to get someone out of carbonite. You just twist that dial, press that button, and then it stops. You know, it's not a really ultra secure thing. It's not meant for transferring prisoners or anything. It's just meant to, you know, transfer other things. 
So it's really easy to do. So he shows Luke how to do it. And then Luke uses the force and then does that on all of the carbonite slabs that are in this shipyard. So then these people gow the slab of carbonite pretty quickly. They haven't got any hibernation sickness or any of the stuff that Han had in Return of the Jedi. Because obviously when Han, Han, I keep doing it. Sorry guys, saying Han or Han. But when he gets frozen out of carbonite, when Leia gets him out in Jabba's palace, obviously he's a bit blind. He's got hibernation sickness, etc. But that's because he's been frozen for about a year. Whereas all of these people who are frozen in carbonite seemingly have only been frozen for several hours, if that. So as soon as they're unfrozen, they kind of jump up and are kind of ready to go. But then the troopers all pull their guns onto all these people that have suddenly kind of emerged. And then Luke uses the force to take all of the blasters out of the stormtroopers' hands, drop them near the now freed people. And then Leia and some of these other people start shooting at the stormtroopers and then you know, chaos ensues. After a bit of shooting here, there and stuff, they manage to all get onto an Imperial shuttle, apart from Luke who manages to go and find his X-Wing. And then Lando, Leia, Lobot, and then the group of prisoners that they saved are flying away on an Imperial shuttle, which is the T-4A Lambda-class shuttle, you know, the box with the three fins on that I always mention. And then the freed people on the shuttle all thank Lando, you know, they call him a hero and stuff, saying that he went back to save them and etc. And he doesn't say he didn't do that, obviously, and someone gives him a hug. And he just kind of looks at Lobot and goes, huh. And you can kind of see him slowly starting to realize that doing good things is, you know, rewarding in its own ways. And then this comic ends with Leia and Lando head to where the rebel fleet are. And Luke says that he needs to search for someone. So he'll meet up with the rebellion later. Leia says, that's fine. You've earned it. You've done so much for the rebellion. So then Luke tells R2 to find a planet that has things like red coasts. And he basically just describes what he saw in the vision. And R2 says, oh, there is a planet that fits that description. We'll head there now. And then that's where comic number four ends. So on to issue number five, the penultimate issue. It starts off in some random bar somewhere and there's a guy wearing sunglasses claiming to be Luke Skywalker. Darth Vader enters, walks up to them and then just kills them in front of everyone, warning everyone around that Skywalkers die and anyone who is pretending to be Luke Skywalker will then have to be punished for the crimes he's committed against the Empire. And I want to clarify here as well, from this Star Wars 2020 run, as well as the Darth Vader 2020 run, which is the third run of Darth Vader comics and the second run of Afro comics, 2020 once again, since all of those, they've done something with Vader, which I really, really like. And the whenever he speaks, his speech bubbles are actually black with white writing, whereas, you know, all the other characters in this have got white speech bubbles with black writing. And it wouldn't immediately seem like something that makes that much of a difference. But I just find when I'm reading it, especially when you're looking at a panel like a moment before you've actually started reading it and you see the black speech bubble, you immediately hear Vader's voice. And I think that works really well because it shows that Vader's voice really cuts through anything. Like in any of the movies or series, anything like that, as soon as Vader speaks... It just, you hear it above all else. And I just think that that's a really, really cool thing to do. And I'm glad that with basically all Star Wars comics from 2020, it seems like Vader's speech bubbles are black with white writing. And I just think that's really cool. I know like loads of other publishers do it, like in Marvel, like Venom does it and Carnage does it and those sort of things as well. Obviously, these are also published by Marvel. But I just want to highlight that. I just thought it was a really cool thing. But yeah, that little scene ends with Vader telling the Imperials that are nearby that he was displeased with false leads and there will be consequences if his time keeps getting wasted. So it goes to Luke and R2-D2. They go to a planet called Sorelia that only appears in these comics thus far. And they go and land near a shore. They see a hooded figure getting like some fish and things. It seems to be some sort of fishing world or at least area. There's like a pier slash boardwalky thing where they're fishing. And so Luke approaches this hooded figure and speaks to them and says, oh, I saw you in a vision. He kind of mentions the Jedi and things. And then 
this hooded figure drops like a huge amount of fish onto Luke. He like dives out of the way. And then this hooded figure just zooms away on a boat. So Luke goes after them. He grabs some nearby boat as well and then chases this hooded figure. This hooded figure throws some debris in the water, you know, like crates and that sort of thing. And Luke's boat, as it catches it, flips. The hooded figure runs into like a cave near the shore and Luke gets saved by R2-D2. No surprise there because R2 carries the, the Skywalkers in like all of the facets. And yeah, R2 just helps Luke get to shore. And one of the things I really, really liked, this is like one of my favorite panels of almost any comic. It's it's very silly, but I really love it, is that when Luke, after being in the water and kind of almost drowning, when he gets to the edge of the coast, he's like dripping wet and things. And he puts his hand down on the shore and he says that he loves sand. And it's just one of those things where it's so minute, but obviously it's a nod to Anakin saying how much he hates sand. And I just think when I first read that, like when this first came out nearly two years ago now, it just cracked me up. Just Luke loving sand. It's it's just one of those funny things that just points out the silliness of the prequels while also still confirming in canon that both Luke and Anakin have opinions so strongly on sand, which I think is quite entertaining. But um, yeah, anyway, moving on to the you know important story rather than weird little things I find amusing. So Luke enters this cave that that hooded figure went into. As he enters the cave, he springs a booby trap which drops this big rock down. Luke dives out of the way and then force pushes R2-D2 and R2-D2 gets flung across the room. And then once the dust has settled and both of them are okay, Luke then says to R2, look, wait outside. I don't want you getting harmed while I'm doing this. And also if anything happens to me, then you need to tell Leia and the others what's happened. So then it goes through a few pages, which are really cool, where it's got Luke going through loads of different traps and things and mentioning to himself that this isn't as bad as some of the things that Yoda threw at him on Dagobah. And uh, then he gets towards the end and then the floor breaks underneath him and he falls into like this cell. So he falls into it's like a little mini cave, but from where he kind of fell, there's like bars on the top. And then uh, water starts to rise from the bottom. This hooded figure appears, it's confirmed they're a woman, and asks Luke why he's there. Luke then, you know, gives a bit more information about his vision and seeing her and the Jedi and actually gets to kind of explain himself a little bit more. And it confirms that the hooded figure is in fact someone called Verla. Now, Verla is someone that I have mentioned in a previous episode of Styles Comics and Canon. In fact, it was only a few episodes ago, it was episode 70, where I tackled the third volume of Darth Vader comics from 2017, uh, which are also written by Charles Saul. And it was around the, the Mon Cala arc. So it was set a year or so after Revenge of the Sith. And Darth Vader, along with some Inquisitors, goes to Mon Cala, which is the homeworld of Admiral Akbar and some Quarren as well. He basically goes there, speaks to King Lee Char, who was in the Clone Wars as well, and there was like a Jedi hiding there, and Verla was one of the people following the Jedi. Now, this is set over 20 years later, I believe, and so Verla is a clear connection to that. So I really like it when Charles Saul does this. He, he doesn't generally like just create a new character out of nothing. He likes to like link things together, so it feels very rewarding as a reader of all of this uh, content and things. Uh, but yeah, that's who Verla is. So if you weren't aware of that, go back and check out episode 17 of Stars Comics and Canon, or pick up the Darth Vader third volume, which is issues 13 to 18. And they're well worth a read. Like The Darth Vader 2017 run is arguably some of my favourite comics ever. But yeah, anyway, Verla speaks to Luke, and it turns out that Luke doesn't know about the Jedi Purge, about Order 66, about the Inquisitors, or really anything like that. He seemingly hasn't been told anything that important from Ben or Yoda. 
which Verla is very, very surprised by. So she talks about the Purge and the Inquisitors and stuff, and she explains she's basically been on the run almost her whole life. Since the events that we saw in the Vader comics, she's just been hiding from the Inquisitors. Anyone that she's come across has then been killed. It's just been a nightmare for her. And then she mentions Darth Vader and then notices that Luke has some sort of reaction to it. So she tries to push herself into his mind to try and kind of figure out why he had that reaction to Vader. And then she finds out that Vader is obviously Luke's father, which he only found out like maybe days ago, if not less. As soon as she finds that out, she immediately reactivates that water flow and that cell thing that Luke is in completely fills to the top with water, floods, and that is where that comic ends. So with that in mind, let's move on to the final comic, issue number six. So you've got Luke in this cell thing, basically drowning, and Verla's just watching him, giving more information about how her life is so difficult, and, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago about the Inquisitors were pursuing her, that sort of thing. And then R2-D2 sneaks up behind her and zaps her, and she passes out. He then pushes the button that she pushed, and then the water all seeps away, and then Luke is knocked out, he seems to have partially drowned, so R2-D2 then zaps him as well, he like, vomits up a bit of water, and then he's seemingly okay. It then cuts to sort of nighttime, and there's a fire going on outside of that cave, and it's Luke, R2, and Verla, and Verla is bound with ropes and things. Once she wakes up, Luke then basically immediately frees her and then asks her about Darth Vader. She tells him that his name was Anakin Skywalker, says that he was a hero of the Clone Wars, and then some horrible thing happened, and then he became an agent of evil. But she doesn't really know that much else, because everything was told to her by Ferran Barr, over 20 years ago, so obviously it was all secondhand and stuff. He thanks her and then offers her some fish that he's been cooking on the open fire, and then she questions why he spared her. You know, she tried to kill him, and it doesn't really seem to make much sense why he would, like, let her go. And he says that, first of all, he doesn't kill defenseless, unconscious people, but also he wanted to know about the saber, because obviously he's been having force visions telling him to contact Verla or go near her to try and get some answers regarding how to either get the lightsaber back or something along those lines. So Verla then confirms to Luke that she did try and find a saber and tried to become a Jedi over the last couple of decades. After the events of the Vader comics I mentioned and her master at the time, Ferran Bar, said to her, go become a Jedi. She, at every step of trying to become a Jedi, trying to get a lightsaber, find out all these things, her life just became more and more difficult. Every single clue that she got immediately got found by the Inquisitors and Vader, killed everyone nearby, chased her and pursued her. And so eventually she just kind of gave up with it all and decided to have a simple life. So the place that she's living on now, she's like, you know, it's not the most exciting life, but at least I'm free here. You know, I don't use the force. I don't talk about it or anything. I just slip under the radar and I get to live freely. And she also mentions that the force uses people like tools and she now feels empowered because she's free from the force and it's vague promises, which is quite an interesting turn of phrase, you know, saying the vague promises of the force, which I, I quite like that because there is, you know, Yoda's meant to be someone who's very in tune with the force and anytime you ask him any question, he just gives you this vague half metaphorical answer and it's like, okay, I know what you're saying, but can you give me an actual answer, please? Sometimes you want just a straight answer to certain questions and obviously that's not how the force works. So in saying all these things, Verla is trying to convince Luke to abandon trying to become a Jedi and trying to do all that. She says, look, just live a simple life. If you go down this path, it's not going to work out for you. Unsurprisingly, Luke says no. He says he needs to continue on this path. And even if it's difficult and he goes through horrible things, he wants to try his best to try and do what he can to try and save the galaxy. So Verla gives him some information. She confirms that there's an old outpost from the High Republic and says that she'll tell him where it is in exchange for him never bothering her ever again. He agrees to that deal and then goes to his X-Wing with R2 and heads to a planet called Tempers. 
Now, I want to clarify thus far as of recording this in the High Republic content that I have consumed, Tempest has not come up again. It may come up in the future of the High Republic, but I just quite like it where they are now, since the High Republic era has become a thing, they are now referencing the High Republic a lot more. Obviously, Charles Saul is one of the key writers of the High Republic, so it's not surprising he's going to make little references to that, but I always like those sort of things. So... Luke and R2 get to Tempest and Luke finds a temple. He heads inside and then sees a holocron and also a lightsaber on these plinths. He heads over to the lightsaber and picks it up and then everything all immediately goes dark and a familiar face appears. Not a familiar face to Luke, a familiar face to most of us and that is the Grand Inquisitor. So he is an antagonist from Star Wars Rebels. He also appeared in the 2017 Darth Vader comics, which obviously I've referenced already, but he was more so in the arc before the one where Verla showed up and things. So it was volume one, volume two is when the Grand Inquisitor shows up there. He's a very interesting individual and obviously Luke's never met him or even heard of him before. And the Grand Inquisitor confirms to Luke that he is instructed to kill all who enter. So Luke activates the lightsaber and reveals a yellow blade. And the lightsaber itself is actually a Jedi Temple Guard blade. And in the background of a couple of the panels, you can also see the Jedi Temple Guard's mask. So if anyone has watched Star Wars Rebels, I really hope you have because it's incredible. It's it's my personal favorite animated show of Star Wars. Clone Wars is amazing, don't get me wrong, but it's quite inconsistent, whereas Rebels, for me, is just much more consistent and just gets better and better and better. And Rebels has some of the coolest moments ever in, and when you find out more about the Grand Inquisitor, you find out he used to be a temple guard, and so obviously it's quite nice parallels of the Inquisitor is now guarding a Jedi temple guard's lightsaber in an old Jedi temple to prevent other people getting it. But their lightsabers, they are yellow, there's not a specific reason why. I think it's just because it's meant to be like its own cool color. And it's also meant to show the Temple Guards are slightly different. They're meant to be like emotionless. They're not meant to have full identities. That's why they wear a mask. So that's probably why their lightsabers are generally yellow rather than being, you know, blue or green or even purple or anything like that. So after Luke activates his yellow blade and him and the Grand Inquisitor have a little fight, it shows that meanwhile Vader senses that a trap has been sprung. And so he heads to Tempest. So you've then got plenty of panels and pages of the Grand Inquisitor fighting Luke. They're really, really cool action pieces. I recommend people check out this comic. It is good. And I just want to read a little bit of dialogue between them because there's one specific part that I absolutely love. So this starts with the Grand Inquisitor. Who trained you, boy? A wise Jedi. A master. Did they get bored with you and stop halfway through? You handle that saber like a child and you call yourself a Jedi. No, not yet. Someday. Never. I know my training isn't complete, but I'm not exactly a beginner. Neither am I. I see this place, all these things, and it helps me understand what I'm trying to be a part of. Not just the Jedi, the Jedi Order. That time is over. The Jedi and their lies are gone. This place doesn't feel like a lie. It feels like it was part of something noble. Believe what you like. It didn't save the Jedi, and it won't save you. So that that obviously gets read out while they're fighting and things. And the main thing I liked about that was that you handle the lightsaber like someone was training you and gave up halfway through. That, that bit just made me giggle. And um, you can see, you know, Luke is having that realization while fighting the Grand Inquisitor that it's not just about having a lightsaber that makes him a Jedi. It's not just about this or that. It's about the kind of mindset, the mantra, what you want to do for the universe, what you want to do for the galaxy as a whole. You want to put the needs of the many before the few. Even if it means a lot of sacrifice for yourself, 
you want to try and help others. And that's obviously the, that's what's meant to be how the Jedi kind of think. Obviously, the prequel era Jedi, they were misguided in a lot of ways. You know, one of the reasons that Palpatine could rise is because they were too reliant on, you know, the Republic telling them which battles to fight and in what way, rather than doing what the morally right thing to do is. And obviously, that's the whole point of the seven seasons of the Clone Wars. But I do like seeing this journey and seeing, like, Luke learn. I mean, with all these Star Wars comics, you know, set between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, which obviously was the first run of Star Wars, and then these ones set between Empire and Return of the Jedi, I could just do with almost nothing to do with Han or Leia or maybe Lando. I mean, I kind of like seeing Lando slowly realise that there is importance in the Rebellion, but I'm so much more interested in Luke and like his transformation from the end of Empire Strikes Back, you know, fighting Vader and getting basically wrecked at almost every turn, compared to him fighting him in Return of the Jedi where he was far more competent. And the thing obviously always is a bit strange is that between A New Hope and Empire is about three years, whereas between Empire and Return of the Jedi it's only about a year, but he seems to have grown far more in the year after Empire than he did in the three years leading up to it and i just i really like luke's journey i just want more and more about luke and as of recording this in fact there's a book that's been announced for i think it's may 2022 it's sort of middle-ish of 2022 it's called shadows of the sith and it's actually about luke and lando traveling around trying to find ochi of bestoon and trying to find like sith artifacts and that sort of thing before the force awakens i think it's like 10 years before the force awakens so anyone who's seen rise of skywalker i presume you guys will have a big part of the plotline is trying to find the Wayfinder, and to do that, you get the Sith Blade, and then they find Ochi of Bestoon's corpse, and those sort of things, and it shows that Lando and Luke was trying to kind of find him across the galaxy and then lost him. So that book is going to go into those details, and I'm very, very interested by that, because Luke post-Return of the Jedi, like, obviously it was about 30 years between Return of the Jedi and seeing him in Last Jedi, so I'm very, very interested to see how he got to that point you know we've got little bits we've got bits in the rise of kylo ren comic which i think i tackled in the first ever episode of star wars comics and canon you know we've got shattered empire which is literally like minutes after return of the jedi you got bits and pieces there but we haven't really got a huge huge amount of information to go on and i'm just excited to be able to know more about that so um that was a little tangent about my opinions on these things that went on so let's continue with the last few pages of this comic so during this fight with Luke and the Grand Inquisitor, the Temple Guard mask gets destroyed, the holocron that was there gets smashed, but at the end of it, Luke manages to best the Grand Inquisitor. He uses the force on him a little bit and then slices through him with the lightsaber. And it's worth mentioning here, the whole time Luke's been going against the Grand Inquisitor, he's been kind of on fire, as in the Grand Inquisitor. He's had this weird fire stuff kind of behind him a lot, and when Luke swipes through him, he just becomes this smouldering fire on the floor. It then cuts to a little bit later and it shows Vader entering the temple on Tempest and he speaks to the Grand Inquisitor. The Grand Inquisitor tells Vader that Luke was far stronger than he thought he was going to be, but he said that, you know, can I be freed from this place? Can I be left like in peace in essence? And Vader says, no, you must stay here and continue to defend the temple against anyone else trying to get in. And one of the last things that the Grand Inquisitor says is there are worse things than death. And then he seems to kind of disappear away into the flames again. Anyone who's watched Rebels will know that is the last line of dialogue that Grand Inquisitor ever says. So really, really love that connection there. And then the final pages of this shows that Luke manages to get to Leia, the Rebels and the Pathfinders. And Leia says to Luke, you know, please tell us you've got some good news because we've all quite low on morale and we really need something to bolster people up. And so the final panel of the comic is Luke lifting up the lightsaber in a fairly dramatic fashion, turning it on, and then everyone, you know, Lando and the Pathfinders and Leia, looking up at it and smiling. And that's how this volume ends. So it's a nice hopeful arc. I, I do really, really like this. You know, the 
2015 Star Wars comic run, which was, you know, 75 issues. There were definitely some really cool arcs, like the Ashes of Jedi arc I really, really like, and there's a few others, but there are just quite a few that don't really seem to go anywhere or seem to add anything. Whereas this arc in itself, I feel like, in some ways, has more weight to it than the majority of the arcs from the 75-issue Star Wars run. And I want to clarify, that doesn't take away from that 75-issue run. I think that is a really cool batch of comics. It's just, it goes on for so long, there's just bits and pieces that maybe weren't necessary. But seeing Luke post-Empire with his hand cut off and going through all those things, it's just something you don't get in the movies. You get his hand cut off, he looks a little bit sad, the film ends, and then Return of the Jedi starts, and he seems completely fine, and then is, you know, force-choking Gamorrean cards at Jabba's Palace. So it's just like, where was the struggle? Where was the difficulty in getting through such a defeat of Vader? And it's all in this. And I, I just really, really enjoyed this, um, you know, after rereading it, after not reading it for probably about a year, year and a half, because obviously issue six came out September 2020 and recording this is October 2021. So it's been over a year since I read this and it was just, it's a really, really enjoyable read. But with that said, guys, uh, that's the end of that element of the episode. So which means I'm just going to briefly tell you what you guys can expect coming up. So next week in episode 74, Star Wars Comics and Canon, I'm going to aim to do the finale of the 2017 run of Darth Vader comics. It's called Fortress Vader. It's issues 19 to 25, so there's seven of them in total, and it's quite a chunky one. The final issue of the 2017 Vader run is arguably my favourite comic ever, but it is a very, very visual comic. Uh, so this one would definitely be one that's worth reading along, or you know, if you get Marvel Unlimited or Hoopla or whatever, if you can read along with the next episode, I would really recommend it, because the Vader comics especially really, really benefit from a visual element. But obviously, as always, I'll go through the plot details and the many connections in there, because there, there are quite a few, and it's a really really fun end to the comic run of Charles Saul's Vader and obviously once I finish that then in four weeks or so time I will then begin on the Darth Vader 2020 run by Greg Pak which I think there's two volumes of that before War of the Bounty Hunters and then episode 75 which will come obviously in two weeks time I imagine I will then start on the Bounty Hunters run of comics I believe there are three volumes of that before they get into the War of the Bounty Hunters crossover event so I think by the time I finish the three volumes of Bounty Hunters to lead up to War of the Bounty Hunters I will have probably finished the War of the Bounty Hunters crossover event but that's the general plan and then you know the week after that we'll then be back to War of the Bounty Hunters and that'll be the fourth volume of that uh, and then you know we'll kind of go from there uh, there are a few book reviews I'm planning on doing. I'm going to try and each week record like a chunk of the book review and see if I can keep doing that because book reviews just take quite a long time to not only to edit, but also vet and to try and work out what I do want to say, what I don't want to say. You know, these comics are quite linear. You just go through them, vaguely talk about the plots and then pick up certain connections and information. Whereas the book reviews, because, you know, there's such a huge, huge amount of information, especially because the next one I'm tackling is The Rising Storm by Kevin Scott. So it's like 450 odd pages and it's like a mammoth addition to the High Republic. So I'm going to be doing that. I've also, I just finished reading Race to Crash Point Tower, which is the junior novel of phase one, wave two of the High Republic. And then I've also got Out of the Shadows by Justina Ireland, which is the young adult novel. I've just started reading that. I've only read like a chapter or so. So I've got those three things to do. I want to try and get those book reviews done before January, which is, you know, only two and a bit months away. 
It's, it's probably near a three months away, really, but it's not far till January. And come January, we're going to get the next two High Republic books out. And then February will be the third one. So you get the junior novel and the adult novel released normally on the same day. And then the month later, you get the young adult novel. So lots of books coming out, lots of things to keep myself busy, as well as all these other sort of mini series that are coming out. We've got Crimson Rain, which is going to be like a sequel-ish to War of the Bounty Hunters, I believe. Then we've also got, there's Life Day comics coming out. There's going to be the two-part Marquion Row comics, which is about the main antagonist in the High Republic at the moment, the leader of the Nile, or the Eye of the Nile. And then there's also the Monster of Temple Peak, which is like a kind of origin story about Ty Yorick, who is a character who shows up in The Rising Storm. And then there's also The Trail of Shadows, which is another mini-series set in the High Republic. And then obviously there's the High Republic comics, both adventures and the normal ones. So lots of things to do, but obviously I think I'll tackle those kind of once I've caught up with a lot of these comics. You know, once I've done with War of the Bounty Hunters and done all the relevant series that have connected to that, the only comics I'll need to do will be the Poe Dameron ongoing series, which I'll do monthly, and then the High Republic stuff. And then it should then, in theory, just be a case of keeping up to date with the comic releases that come out. Obviously, one comic gets released per month, generally speaking, and most miniseries are like four issues generally, sometimes five, and most ongoing series, the arcs in them are normally between four and six as well. So in theory, I should have like four months between miniseries finishing and things, um, but we'll we'll see about all that sort of stuff, as well as the book reviews and all the other sort of things I get up to. It's uh, There's a lot of Star Wars comics, and they're great fun reading, and I can't wait to share them all with you guys. Um, But aside from that, guys, there's not really much else to say apart from, you know, check out my other show, Genuine Chits Chats. It's an interview-style show, more conversational than interview-style, but I have guests on there every week. I've had Claudia Gray, the Star Wars author on. I've got a Star Wars artist, one of the people who does some of the comics art. They are coming on the show in a week or two, so that will be released in, like, a few weeks as well. I've recorded an episode with Tonya Todd, Megan and Rhea Carrigan. And Rhea and Tonya, obviously, if you listen to a lot of comics and motion stuff, those names should be familiar. I think Tonya was on one or two of Seasons Greetings, as well as an episode of Indie Comics Spotlight. And we also did the Loki episode when we were talking about the Loki series and things. And then Rhea's part of Pop Gorillas and also appears on Indie Comics Spotlight and also has appeared, I think, on Seasons Greetings as well. So I've got a conversation with those guys I've recorded and it's about, I see those guys, that's just a general term I use for a group of people. And we talk about, you know, women and representation and those sort of things. So it's nice to hear a perspective from other individuals. Um, So that's going to be coming out. I've also got one recorded with an author called Jesse McKinnell, who's a very interesting individual. I chat with him. So lots of things on Genuine Chit Chat to sink your teeth into. And if you want to support the show, go over to patreon.com slash genuine chit chat. If you give as little as one pound a month, which I think is like $1.20 or $1.30 or something. If you give that small amount, you get access to the Patreon exclusive feed and you get the audio feed as well. So you can go on the website or the app. You can look on the feed where I put like guest lists as well as photos of the Star Wars comics a few days early, as well as a few other bits and pieces. But the audio feed is also on there, which you just get a link and you can copy that into your podcast player. And me and Megan release Afterthoughts episodes at least once a week, sometimes twice. They're like 10, 20 minutes long, us reviewing stuff. We've started rewatching the Halloween movies, so we're probably going to do some episodes on them. Uh, there's the X-Men movies we've done a rewatch on, or Megan's first watch, my rewatch. Uh, there's all the Star Wars ones on there, aside from 
I think Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker, we've yet to record those. Uh, we've also done Marvel stuff. There's lots of new movies that are coming out. Like there's Venom, Let There Be Carnage. There's Dune. There's Eternals, Spider-Man No Way Home. Like, lots of films that are all quite intertwined with the nerdy culture and the comic culture. So if you want to hear some spoiler-free reviews of new films, as well as some, you know, someone like Megan, who's not, you know, she didn't watch all the Spider-Man films and all the X-Men films and all that sort of stuff when it all came out. So if you want to hear someone else's perspective, you like hearing mine and Megan's camaraderie, you want to support the show, you want to get hours of extra content, um, a month and also when me and Megan go on road trip to record those and put them on Patreon as well if you want all that extra stuff and you're willing to contribute one pound a month then please go over to patreon.com slash genuine chit chat it means the absolute world to me that so many of you are contributing on there but obviously the more the merrier and obviously the more I get on there then the more time and stuff me and Megan can put into afterthoughts and things and whatnot but at the moment, you still get at least one episode a week, and you also get access to the genuine chit chat episodes when they're split into part one and part two. The full unsplit part drops when part one drops on the normal feed. So, lots of reasons to support me on Patreon. But as always, guys, you know, all the information is in the description about genuine chit chat, about my Patreon, about previous episodes, about other relevant things, about my guest spots I've been on. I've got a few more things coming up. There's the Beer Nuts Productions podcast. I'm going to be appearing on that soon. Uh, I'm appearing on Star Wars Timeline again soon. I think I'm appearing on the Hall of Mirrors podcast as well. Uh, I think I'm going to be appearing on the Talking Dad podcast as well. So loads of things over the next month or two. I'm going to be appearing here, there and everywhere. But obviously these show notes are the best place to check them. Anyway, guys, that is enough for me because this is a very long episode and I'm just rambling at the end here now. Thank you as always for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you listening all the way to the end of this show. I will talk to you guys next Saturday. And as always, may the force be with you. The intro for Star Wars Comics and Canon is arranged by myself, Mike Burton, and the backing music was made by Eric Matias of soundimage.org. You have just experienced host, creator, everything else of genuine chit-chat, and also the host and creator of Star Wars Comics and Canon, found on the Comics in Motion podcast, Mike Burton.